All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. This is a quote from Shakespeare's play As You Like It and you're listening to a seven-part programme series called As We Like It which looks at each of these seven ages of man. In this programme we look at the seventh stage, death, Last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. Death is so final. One second the heart beats in life-giving nurture, the next it stops and all physical life ends. Its finality and inevitability is devastating. Some avoid thinking about death as much as they can. I actually don't think I'm going to die, you know? And and I kind of think, I live life as if it's going to go on forever. And in a sense, I think that's the only way we can live. Because how could we cope with the thought that we are going to be annihilated? This is Kilkenny woman Anne Cody and despite her thoughts on death or maybe even because of her thoughts on death, Anne and her friend Alva set up the Death Matters Festival in Kilkenny, a series of talks around death and dying. And I ask her why she set up the festival. Why did Alva and I start Death Matters? Um, in life, when I earn money, I spend it carefully well I choose what I spend it on and a long time ago I had an awareness that when you die you actually don't have an awful lot of choice about how you spend your money a few years ago a a relative died and myself and my husband we were went to the undertakers we did a lot of the practical arrangements and we looked at coffins and as far as I can remember the kind of the cheapest plainest coffin was about over a thousand euro and I'm thinking that's 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 a wooden box. Why are we spending a thousand euro or more on a wooden box that's going to rot in the ground? And then I think, and if somebody's cremated, is that box burnt? And I thought, I don't know. And who do I ask about these things? And why don't we, um, why don't we have workshops and make our own wooden box and have it stored in the garage so that when it comes to my time, nobody has to go into debt for me. There's a wooden box there. I have it made. It's the right size. And maybe I can paint it how I want to paint it. So then I got thinking about all the, all the other expenses and, and having awareness that the, the debt that people go into and, and the stress that a debt from a funeral can cause. And in Ireland, when you die, you it is likely that you are going to be buried within two or three days. So at that point, you're caught up in a system. And in three days, you could easily put up a bill that actually you can't afford. So I, I thought, well, why can't we talk about it beforehand? Why does somebody have to um, go to church in, in a hearse? Why can't somebody have a pre-packed coffin and get into a nice high-ace van. That's, and, and why do you have to have six men in black carrying your coffin? Why can't you have six clowns carrying your coffin? You know, now that might seem a bit extreme, but I think sometimes what I think is if we can look at the things that are extreme and, and off the wall and we can kind of shatter our 
image of how things should be, must be, and ought to be, then we can say, okay, how do I want it to be? Now, of course, a lot of people want to spend, you know, this money on their coffin because they feel it's respectful for the person and that's what they would have wanted. But the truth is we don't discuss these things. So always in my head, I wanted uh, workshops where we could discuss how do we do funerals? If you belong to an established religion, when you die, you know what happens to you. There's a there's a ceremony, people know what to expect, and you go through it, and there's a big, nice building where you can have this ceremony. There's a huge number of people in Ireland that are not attached to an established church. So what are what are their options for a funeral? Now, we've lots of options for weddings. At a personal level, I am very interested in that. Where will my funeral service be? There's no building here locally that I could have my funeral service in. I, I Now I want to know, how do people who are Muslim, Jews, Hindus, all that I, maybe religions that I don't even know about, how do they handle death in Ireland? Does Ireland meet their needs in terms of death? The more we think about death, the more questions we have. And Death Matters provided some of those answers through talks by the likes of undertakers, doctors and solicitors. Still, it's impossible to get all the answers, as it's not like we can do a dress rehearsal for it. A few years ago, humanistic psychotherapist Mark Redmond did a workshop in death called Death and Resurrection. Yeah, that was quite an intense experience where you face your own death. So in a very, very real and embodied way, you're brought to the process of your dying. And, and one of the most challenging workshops I ever done um, it was, it says on Tuesday evening at eight o'clock, you're going to die. So it was literally a countdown to that. And it was always a constant reminder, you know, we had to chant this mantra that we're going to going to die. <laughs> and it was a, a big sand clock on the wall counting down to time. <laughs> so it was very in your face. And we had to arrange our own funeral, wills, things like that. And... Um, one thing that was very interesting was I write a little bit of poetry I was writing wonderful poems about what was going on in me at the time and at one point we had to we had to get rid of everything that we we own because we you know that thought you can take nothing with you all that will remain is your will so any artwork we done any writings journaling or poetry we had to burn all that letting go of all that we've all our achievements, that really brought it home. Um, none of this matters. But as one part of the workshop as well, we were to, um, to get rid of resentments before we, you know, so within the group, if we had resentments towards other group members, we were to um, share that with that person, say, you know, clear the resentment. And I noticed how hard that was to do. So it really brought home to me, you know, the, the destructive power of resentments and the awful feeling I was bringing that to my debt. I, f- I forget what the sequence was in it, but one thing I, I noticed was very, very hard for me was I would always pride myself in, in life. I've always found a way around, around obstacles. I prided myself on that. I'll always find a way. But I re- it was really brought home to me. I, I can't find any way around this. And that was very hard to accept that, that I had absolutely no control over this. So that which I prided myself on the most was was the biggest obstacle, really, to debt. Mm. I, I couldn't accept that. I had to in the end. 
But I noticed another thing that made me very resistant to accepting debt was the thoughts of how devastated my partner would be at the time when I'm gone. And that, that relationship, that bond, that attachment and separation is a very interesting dynamic coming up to debt. Separating from loved ones is mm. hard. It must be so hard to do that final goodbye to loved ones and life as we know it. Druid and psychotherapist Emer Burke accompanied her husband on his journey with cancer. The former GP, psychiatrist, writer and poet Howard Campbell first got bladder cancer and then pancreatic cancer and lived 18 months from his initial diagnosis. I think his, his, his philosophy was, was to walk on one leg of pessimism and one leg of optimism. So the optimism was around, okay, I'm going to live fully as we had always done. Nothing's going to change for as long as we can. The leg of pessimism, this is going to end. Mm. And just to be aware and not to be unrealistically hopeful. So that was always there. So that worked very well. Anyway, he had his chemo, which reduced his tumour, but then he developed varices around his um, pancreas, so that couldn't be operable. The next possibility was radiation. And the oncologist there said it had as good an outcome as surgery. But there was a lot of um, preparation so that they would be able to give the maximum dose with the least amount of damage and all that stuff. He only managed to have one session. Then things started to go wrong for him, so he went into hospital. So he was in Luke's for a week and then in Waterford for three weeks. And it was about the last week in Waterford he developed secondaries. He didn't have secondaries up to then, so that always kind of kept us going, that somehow the tumour was contained, mm. but then it went into his abdomen. And then he said, oh, I remember him saying when we got that, he says, well, he said, the leg of pessimism has prepared me for this. So now, that's the worst case scenario. He only has a limited number of weeks. We didn't know. Then he came home after a week. I wanted him to get home. So when I was driving him home, he said, I have two or three weeks, but he got six weeks. So he was in the room downstairs off the kitchen. He always said, I want to be part of the household. Mm. That's where I want to be. So the palliative care team, got the, the home care team, they were absolutely amazing. Public health nurses were brilliant. Now, we didn't need much support from them. They would ring every day, but come in every just two days. Mm. They, had we needed more, they would have been there every day. We were offered home help three times a, a day. We didn't need that. I'm a, I used to be a nurse, and then my sister came home from Sudan to help me. So we, we looked after him together. But he was very easy to look after. By the time I had to do everything for him, absolutely. People said, that's a terrible loss of dignity. And he says, I never had any to lose. He was very, very happy. Mm. He died on the 9th of April. So the 18th of March, he said, you know, I really love how we are in this t- together. It's like a party. And he says, I'm so grateful. My parents didn't have this dying. So he was an absolute joy to take care of. His psyche was very good, his spirit was very good, just his body got very weak. And uh, he was writing continuously. He had always said he would stay as long as he doesn't have pain that he can't manage. I remember being in Luke's, they would say, you know, how do you rate your pain on a scale of 1 to 10? He said, if it gets any higher, I'm dying. I want to die. So we always knew that. With the palliative care team, they managed his pain really well. He actually ended up needing very little pain management. And I remember uh, two days before he died, he had a bit of an accident and he was a little bit put out. And I said, look at her, you know, if you want to go, go. He said, I'm not ready. I'm not going yet. Like that would strengthen his voice. Two days later, something must have ruptured. And then the pain got really bad. And um, 
the palliative care nurse had just been and an hour previously we called her back and she said get everybody home so it was a matter of hours and then they were giving him more and more yeah. and um, we just kept you know go we'll be fine go yeah. so we were all with them you know my t- our t- our shared children and then one of my stepsons and my stepdaughter yeah. and then some friends and I played the harp to him and a friend coach she sang to him and and my sister was here as well so it was, it was and then a few friends came in the afternoon just to say goodbye to him and uh, it was really lovely actually he he didn't battle cancer he described it as weaving his way with it he didn't fight it and neither did I and people said to me do not get angry they talk about the stages of dying and stages of bereavement it's a it's a model I don't actually doesn't fit me didn't fit us you know that you go through denial and anger and we didn't it's like okay you've got cancer it's there we know it's there and we're going to live our life fully until it stands in front of us and I was never angry sad oh god yeah right incredibly sad but never angry because I think we'd had a very good relationship we had prepared ourselves for this so there was nothing and cancer gives you time that's one thing I'm grateful for many other people that might not be their same experience but had he died of a heart attack I would have been angry had he died suddenly on me now we had always talked about and reviewed our relationship but what the cancer gave us extra time to do more talking because we always talked but it gave us a bit more and I'm really grateful for that that um, there was nothing that uh, we said that we shouldn't have said to each other or nothing that we didn't say that we should have said. So I feel we lived a, a very full life together and so I was, we were together till the end. So there's nothing left unfinished. There was nothing left unfinished. Mm-hmm. Now, I would have been happy and we both would have been happy to have continued much longer. So, But we, what we had was really, really good. So I'm grateful for that. And two kids and they were included in all the conversations. Yeah. Um, they were the first to be told when there was any update on um, his illness and it was we knew and then they were the first two to be told Mm. and then after that everybody else was told that needed to know I do miss him hugely because he was my uh, go-to person and we worked together and because I I work from home so he was always here he was quiet publicly but he never shut up at home really? (laughs) yeah he was great I'm a very bright man just so intellectually we just have wonderful conversations mm. and I miss that I miss having that here the only thing is he couldn't dance that would save his life so I, I love dancing I've taken it up I, I took up tango in October and I just started salsa and a bit of bachata so I love dancing he would just freeze in fear and terror so that's something I love so I'm doing that again and I declare the ceremony closed in the apparent world who knows what goes on on the other side Emer and Howard shared many things together and Druidry played a big part in shaping their attitudes to life. With Druidry, there is no dogma and there is no list of sins um, and there's no big book telling you how to live your life. You have your own internal moral, moral compass and you take responsibility for your actions. And we talk about the law of the harvest. And I mean, it's a bit like that biblical thing, what you sow, so you shall reap. So you take responsibility. And part of our thing is to, to do life reviews to review our lives. So the idea is, what do I want on my deathbed? Do I want to be able to say, God, you know, I had a great life. I could have done more if I stayed longer, but, you know, I'm really, really happy. Or do I want to have lots of regrets? I should have, blah, blah. So 
we keep an eye to that and also tidying up as you go along. If there are relationships that need to be repaired or can be repaired, you work on that. And if they can't, you let them go so that you keep an eye on how am I living my life? Am I happy with the way I'm, I'm living my life? Can I actually say, yeah, I'm doing the best I can. It's not about perfection. It's not about saintliness. It's not about piety, none of that. But that you can actually say, yeah, I think I've done a good job and I'm doing a good job so far. So that when I come to the moment of death, I'm not going to judge myself about the so-called wrongdoings that hopefully I will have repaired or made amends for the things I've done that I'm not happy about. I think that's something we should all be doing. So then there's not, there isn't that fear. There isn't that fear and there isn't those regrets either that tend to upset a person when accepting their upcoming death. While caring for her patients, Fennerborn Hospice Nurse Margaret Cox can often be privy to those qualms. In conversations with patients, a lot of them would share regrets is a theme that seems to come up. And um, it's the very simple things of regret, you know, about their interactions with people, maybe not saying sorry or about not following through on things. And like we only meet them um, at a tiny section of their life. You know, they've had such a journey before and sometimes they choose to show snippets of it. Like, and it's a real privilege to hear that. Like I remember one man and he said that the post came and one letter was his redundancy. The funding had come through. So he was buying a camper van and then the other letter was his diagnosis confirming that he had a terminal disease and and just the contrast like I remember him describing that moment and that that was when his whole life was changed and again he was emphasizing not to take things for granted buy the camper van go travel do what makes your heart happy sing dance you know all these things that he would have had regrets about that he had worked so hard all his life and was aiming and aiming and aiming for this retirement and then the same day this his diagnosis came true you know yeah While regrets can be universal, everybody's individual experience on the road to their death will be different, according to Margaret Cox, who believes that this journey to death offers a great opportunity for healing. I think it's very individually, I can't emphasise that more, but um, some people can reach a place of acceptance and you can really see their true self shine. It's very beautiful. Um, And with that, there can be a lot of healing. There can be a lot of conversations that never took place that needed to take place. There can be a lot of personal growth, a lot of spiritual growth. um, A lot of uh, work can happen within 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 the time as well. Like sometimes I think when people get a diagnosis, there definitely can be an acceleration of growth within themselves. It's like society is, is nearly ready to have to open that to the conversation that need to happen or the moments that need to be need to be shared and there's a there's a more um appreciation of the life they have um it's about quality of life and about just enjoying each moment and creating moment moment by moment so there's a lot of beauty in that you know, if people are able to hold it there's obviously a lot of pain and a lot of contrasting emotions as well to be in pain is a difficult hardship and it's tough on families to witness too According to Margaret, the painful contractions that some might feel on their journey to death can take different forms. There's a concept in palliative care and we call it total pain. So again, it's back to the concept of dealing with person and their personhood and as a whole person. And within that, there is um, physical 
physical pain, which there are ways to deal with, but also we have um, spiritual pain or existential pain and emotional pain and all these which are very appropriate and which which come up as well. And sometimes the, the patient can voice a physical pain and um there are certain ways you can assess them, but also when you go deeper, it's actually a spiritual pain or a psychological pain, a pain of their loss, of their, their grieving, you know, of the future, of the uncertainty or maybe dynamics in the family that they're hurting about that they need to they feel they need resolved. It's very complex, you know, um, when we're when we're talking about pain, you know, and there can be real suffering, you know, suf- suffering within that suffering can overlap and different words for pain can mean different things as well for different patients. Nighttime can bring up a lot of pain, you know, and you can see actually patterns in patients if certain things aren't dealt with, you know, a lot of fears can come in the dark and come from nighttime as well. And it's actually very special because sometimes at nights you do, you just get that, um, that maybe that little bit more time and more autonomy at night to, to be able to sit with the patient. I often say to family, um, when a patient is in the dying stage, there's different stages of, I mean, we kind of say actively dying, so that their death is imminent and can happen any time. When they've slipped, they're in a coma, they're, they're not conscious. I'd always say to the family, have you told them that it's okay to go? Have you given them permission to go? Have you told them you love them? Have you told them um, that you forgive them and that you're sorry if you need um, different things like that. I feel sometimes patients can be waiting for like sometimes family members coming from abroad and the timing of their death is is it is a mystery, but also it's it's very powerful to see the timing of death as well. But I have seen situations where definitely family members have arrived and the timing of it has been has been on cue as if they, they you know, they knew that they'd arrived and now now we're all together, now it's time for go. And on the other hand, sometimes patients would have family with them around the clock, holding their hand, not letting them go, and maybe they pop out to go to the loo or maybe have a drink and the patient um can die. I also think that's um a patient's choice as well, that they're not able to go if everyone's holding me. I'm not able to go, you're not letting me go. You know, you'd see the opposites as well, you know, that they they depending on the individual and their personality and the privacy and the way they were when they were active in their life that they can actually choose as well, the timing as well. There's just there's a mystery to it all, yeah. A mystery that maybe we don't allow our curiosity to explore enough. I, I can stop a conversation <laughs> uh, when I say what I'm doing. Like It's funny, people's fears around it, but um, I, I just think we just need to be more curious about it. We don't have to have certain cert rules on it, but definitely a curiosity can help, you know, and maybe a sense of wonder around it, you know, because it's, it's coming to us all. It's part of it's part of our life as well. But um, it's it's definitely there's a lot of fear in society around it. And um, conversation would definitely be a, be a start. At an open day at the Woodbrook Natural Graveyard in Kiltili, I meet some people who are having those conversations about their death. What's your name? My name's Giles Fitzherbert. Um, obviously, this is your land then? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And why did you decide then to 
put a burial ground on it? Well, it's a it's an odd story, really. It's, I was thinking of of, of, of my own demise, uh, which probably is not too far away, and um, I thought it'd be nice to be buried on my land here, which is a lovely place, and all that. And um, and so I sort of looked around to find if there was somebody who would do that. And 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 by chance, I, I got in touch with Colin McAdear up in Donegal, who. Um, Said he said yeah yeah he could probably arrange something like that but then he he, he had the further thought he said you haven't by any chance got a bit of land where I could do a natural burial ground because I've been looking for one place to do it for some years now and I haven't found anywhere and so I thought about it and in fact I had a, a stand of spruce here which was long due for for cutting and um, felling and so I said yes I think I do have a piece of land. And so anyway, we did a deal, and uh, and here we have the the natural burial ground, and uh, and anyway, the idea is eventually that this this land will revert to being just a piece of woodland. That's why we have people plant trees when they have a burial, and uh, and we don't allow upright uh, headstones, just a little plaque on the ground to show where people are, yeah. um, and that I hope in 50 years' time, 100 years' time, I don't know how long it'll take to fill up, but. Uh, it will be another piece of woodland. It won't really look like a graveyard anymore. So you're um, creating something which will which will last, which won't just be a, a lot of upright stones. And there's great interest in it. You're having an open day now today. Yes, this is an open day. And, and Colin McAteer, who's come all the way from Donegal, he, he runs it really. And he's an undertaker and he makes the, he has a little cottage industry. He started up in Donegal making the, um, the, 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 the willow coffins, mm. which again, we, we don't allow for sort of those big coffins with brass handles and all that. It has to be a, a simple coffin. And uh, he makes them now up in Donegal, and they're lovely. Uh, and he's here today. Yeah, he's, he, this, is, this is the day when people come and they have a look and they decide whether they want to end up here or not. And uh, I've already decided I'm, I'm going to end up here. Tandy having one's own burial place organised that's something that my wife doesn't have to bother about uh, when the time comes. How much are the plots? Grave ashes are scattered. Grave, grave is 950. Okay. Okay. There's a separate fee then for opening and closing the grave, which is standard in any graveyard. Yes, we have to pay John, you know. Um, <laughs> and Nile. So. You're here today and you're looking around the, the Woodbrook Green Graveyard. Woodbrook Green Graveyard, yes. What do you think of it? Well, I just think it's so beautiful and it's such a serene, natural ground at the foot of Mount Leinster and surrounded by trees and birdsong and I think it's just such a lovely, peaceful place that one could choose to rest when the time comes at the end of one's life, yes. And you're you're coming here to kind of look for a place for yourself? Yes, I'm, I'm in my early 60s and I have two adult children and I would like to have a plan for where I would eventually like to go. I'd like to be very clear for my family where I would prefer to lay to rest. And that's why I'm thinking of actually purchasing a site here um, in the near future and having that written down, even though I do hope to continue living for many years to come. I don't have any health issues at the moment, so... You see, it is very sad. It is very sad when a person goes, but we are all going to die, you know. We're on our journey in life. You see, I don't believe that there is anything after this. I don't... You know, I think... And that's why I believe it's important to celebrate it in the best way possible, because these are the years I'm trying to do the best I can. I'm trying to enjoy life to its full... 
And that's why I think this is the best resting place. It's not a case of saying, OK, this is where I go for the better life afterwards. I don't have that view, but many people do. But I think this is the best place to come, having lived my life to its full. I want to have it done the way I want it done, rather than them saying what way did mum want it. Because I've told them I don't want a church ceremony. I just want to be cremated, ashes in a hole. That's it. And a little stone at the top. Or maybe a tree or something just... And you were saying you wanted... You don't want cremation? No, I don't. Simply, well, because of the environmental environmental impact um, and the amount of energy it takes to actually raise the temperature and things like that. And seeing somebody dropping into that hole can be quite horrific. Whereas I think the surroundings here in itself is calming on the soul for people who are saying goodbye to their loved ones. So that for me is enticing. As a society and as humans, we need to come back to more natural things. And this is probably the way it was done naturally for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And we lost our way with big monuments and mausoleums and the bigger, the better. Whereas you're losing the focus, which is on the passing of somebody that you loved. And I think that should be the focus rather than... It has gone commercialised. It's all about the money and how big your hair was. That's not what's important. It's remembering the person celebrating their life I think that's the most important thing celebrating their life and their loves and their passions and saying goodbye to them in a in a tranquil yeah, yeah tranquil peaceful and peaceful area, area. The, the, we have about four or five thousand spaces here in this field no 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 oh, this is Colin McAteer manages the Woodbrook Natural Burial Grounds he's based in Donegal and as an undertaker is well used to the normality of death yeah, I'm at it a long time now. I'm over 20 years. Um, it's a family business. My grandfather was at it back in the 50s. Um, it's nothing new when you grow up in a household like that. It's an everyday thing. People talk to you about death all the time. You, it, it just becomes normal to you. In the same way, whereas maybe a farmer would talk about cattle, we talk about death because it's what people choose to speak to you about and it's who you're speaking to and it's, it's, it's part of your life, really. So it's, it's, it's a normal, everyday sort of conversation for us so Colin believes that the traditional graveyard setup is unsustainable I do think that there's something maybe wrong with the traditional Victorian type cemetery that we have I think that there's there's only a limited amount of resources on the earth by creating concrete paths with marble headstones and everything else you're effectively taking that ground out of use for the future here what we're doing is we're adding to the environment and it's, it's, it's adding to what we have a vast majority of the graveyards in Ireland um They've been created by the churches down through the years. Um, they've used the Victorian type uh, format where it's a headstone, concrete surrounds, whatever it is. Um, what we're finding in more recent years, people want something more natural, but also um, maybe the traditional graveyard providers aren't as keen to provide graveyard space anymore even as far as the councils the councils technically don't want to know about it because that model is so wrong and it's so resource orientated like how do you maintain a traditional graveyard um it takes a lot of money it takes a lot of your taxes uh a lot of the graveyards that are in ireland are reaching capacity at the minute um there's a statistic that 10 that 75% of the graveyards in Ireland will be filled in 12 or 15 years for new burial space. 
um, who's going to fill that void and what model are they going to use. We love this model, it's maintenance free virtually, um, it's good for the environment, there's very little things that you can do that um, cost less and are better for the environment, so why not do this? Do I fear death? Not as much as I thought I would. Um, I fear uh, more a severe disability that might happen to me between now and then. But death as such, no, I just hope it will happen as it happened to a friend of mine, as they say he woke up dead one morning. Pat Nolan is a genealogist and historian based in Kilkenny. With him, we trace the history of Irish attitudes to death over the years. If you go right back to the origins, even pre-Celtic times in Ireland, there's evidence that there was not quite a confusion, but a blurring of the distinction between our ancient ancestors and the deities. It's important we're not talking about God, we're talking about gods, multiples. And there's little doubt that over the centuries, the ancient Irish idea was that your ancestors became gods. And that informed most of the attitude towards the burial and generally the, the, the treatment of dead people. And that's why we come across Powrone in County Clare or Browns Hill Dolman and Lackanshgall in South Kilkenny as well. So these are definitely linked to burial places. Um, not all of them have been excavated, but those that have show clear evidence that they were involved or they were the centrepiece, the ritualistic centrepiece for burials. Then we come <coughs> to the arrival of the Vikings, which of course brought a new tradition, a new set of values, if you will. And there are very few Viking burials, but those that are, are quite significant. The only ones that I'm aware of in the, in the broad sense in the southeast is in a place called Castle Dermot where there are, just inside the cemetery, the present-day Christian cemetery, there are two what's known as hog heads. And they are, they are called that because there are huge, massive stones, usually of granite, and they have a form on the back of them, like the sort of curve of a pig's back. The biggest single change, I think, about the... Philosophy is the Black Death, which created a, a huge need to dispose of bodies which were, for the first time, these were seen themselves as being a source of plague, a source of, of further disease and so on. So there was an immediate need to dispose of them. Now, the, the only place where we can be clear where there was a cemetery devoted to that is in London. There was a cemetery which was opened, used for the Black Death and closed immediately afterwards. And it started with mass graves, with several people. But there's clear evidence that they weren't just dumped there, they were laid there carefully. But because of the numbers, the sheer numbers, they weren't in individual graves. But that gave rise to quite a lot of uh, change. Now we get to the arrival of the Normans and the sense of um, 
everything flowed from the king, the whole question of feudal situation where the king owned everything and you got your pecking order, if you like, from him. And that began to reflect itself in not any longer being associated with the glory of the person who was dead, but the reflected glory to their family. Now, one of the things is how we buried people generally. And prior to the 1700s, 18th century, there's very few standalone cemeteries. They were always surrounding a church. One of the things I've found, particularly in rural areas, if you examine a church within its graveyard, you'll find the church is always up against the north wall of the cemetery. And this is because of the old tradition which still persists in some places where the north was always deemed the devil's side because that's where bad wind and cold and rain and snow comes from and equally it's for where the Norsemen came. There was this thing that we needed the church between us and all this nastiness coming to us from the north. In Ireland, the Catholic Church dominated our attitudes to death for many, many years. In particular, they influenced our thoughts on an afterlife to the resurrection of Jesus. Pat Nolan recently discovered an interesting study on this theory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ah, here it is. Yeah. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Yeah. Now, um, this is not a religious tract at all. It, it started out by a, an American senior counsel, as we would call it, uh, you know, uh, and he examined the myth, as he saw it, of Christ rising from the dead. And he decided to approach this as a case, as a legal case. And he analysed um, all the reasons why it wouldn't be true. And he indeed came up with five. One, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Two, the resurrection was a conspiracy. The disciples were hallucinating. The account is simply legendary. And five, if none of those fishes, then it really did happen. And he set about this as a forensic scientist, and he went through each of the different ones. And in a little booklet that I, I uh, prepared of, of his findings, um, I find that he went through the lot and he was forced to the conclusion that, yes, this did happen. The evidence is there, and he analyzes each of these five options. And the only one that fits is that Jesus did rise from the dead. I found that immensely encouraging, because he's the only person who did. And that gives me the belief that, yes, there is an afterlife. And while I'm not a fan or an apologist for organized religion, I differentiate between that and a belief in Jesus Christ and God. And that makes me confident that, yes, there is an afterlife. And that really, I suppose, informs my uh, concern or lack of it about death as such. Do you believe that there is an afterlife? Do you believe that there is anything after death? Do you know what? I just kind of think, I look at a tree dying and it rots in the ground. And what happens to the physical tree is that it then kind of becomes part of other 
life forms in the ground. So physically, I think that's what's going to happen to me. I also kind of think that every part of us is reused in some way. So what's going to happen to the... Like, part of me is not physical. Like, my thoughts in my head, my emotions, my feelings, these are not physical things. These are things that are not going to rot in the ground. So what's going to happen to them? And I, the answer is, I don't know. And why would I torment, torment myself with questions that I am not going to find the answer to? So I just think, I park that one. A child in the womb does not know that when it comes out of the womb, there is this kind of this amazing life. Well, for most children, it is an amazing life. But for some children, it is not an amazing life. Um, but there's this whole world of difference. So why would I torment myself with questions that I cannot possibly know the answer for? So I just park them all. Don't, talk, don't bother my head with them. That's the truth. I'm not interested in talking to speak people about spirituality. I have no interest because I can't know the answers. And Cody there. Nowadays, everybody has a different concept of death and the afterlife. And it brings out the individuality in a person and, in a sense, demonstrates the creativity of life. Druid Emer Burke. You know, I've kind of meditated on where I go when I die. None of us can ever know. And I'm only imagining what it might be for me. So I do believe in an afterlife. I, I don't think I need to give you the details where I think I'm going. But because I think that's a personal thing and it's, it's personal to everybody. Agnostics or atheists or people who believe that nothing happens after may think I'm absolutely crazy. But we're only talking about beliefs, we're not talking about facts. So it is something that sustains me and it makes sense to me. I mean, the, the ancient peoples of this land were never afraid of the Celts, for example, though we're, we're pre-Celtic, the Irish people were Neolithic, but were never afraid of death. And there was that notion that there was a life beyond. And I may come back again, I don't know. I know I've, I have a sense, I've been here many times before, who knows? But I do have a sense there is something beyond there. And then even science has looked at Researching people who have had near-death experiences. And what's really interesting is it's, so, it's the common thread among all those experiences. You know, seeing a light, meeting other beings who are saying it's not your time. And that sense of peace. I'm wanting to stay there, but then being told, actually, you need to go back. You're not, you're not ready yet. And I know uh, an uncle of mine whom I, I wasn't particularly close to, but my mother told me that he'd had a, a cardiac arrest about 10 years before he died. And he was never fear, afraid of death after that. Mm. So... Even if it's white light and it's that feeling and nothing else on it, I think that's, that's, that, that, that would be good enough. And that sense, there is no judgment. So I don't fear that. And because I don't have a notion of hell uh, or purgatory and burning an eternal fire, that doesn't scare me. So I'm not afraid of it. I can't but be challenged by thoughts about my own mortality and why we're here and and if I was faced with my own death that definitely has evolved as part of a personal journey both spiritually and mentally emotionally psychologically you know nature teaches us constantly how for growth there has to be that as well there has to be the darkness there has to be um, the darkness and the light the balance of it all There's no conning debt, you can't talk, talk debt out of it. You can't smile that one away with positive thoughts or whatever, it's, it's not going to cut it. So it brings that other side to life. Life is quite cruel. You know? But what's life for then? We actually are here to experience life. We've gotten the opportunity to experience this. 
So do I just sit at home in my cellar, waiting for life to pass by? You know, it's not really much experience or living in that. So, okay, it is as it is, I might as well live it and experience it in all its colours. Because then you're fully alive. And so we've come to the end of our series on the seven stages of man, inspired by the following quote from Shakespeare's play As You Like It. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances. And one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first the infant, meowling and puking in the nurse's arms, Then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like snail unwillingly to school. And then the lover, sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrow. Then a soldier, full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honour, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice, All rise. in fair round belly, with good cape and lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances. And so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon, with spectacles on nose and pouch on side. His youthful hose, well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank and his big manly voice, turning again towards childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. This has been the seven-part programme series As We Like It. Thank you to all the contributors to the series and thank you for listening. KCLR As We Like It was produced by Monica Hayes and made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee.